Today I'm excited because we're beginning our Prince of Peace series and we're going to be looking at the title that Jesus has uh, that is called Wonderful Counselor. So if you want to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9, that's where we're going to be for most of our lesson today. We're also going to be looking at Luke chapter 8, if you want to put your finger there and bookmark that for later. I have a very eclectic taste of, in music. Most people are kind of surprised to look at my Spotify playlist because I have music from just about every style and genre there is. In the case of classical music, one of my favorite Christmas compositions is called Handel's Messiah. Anybody ever heard of that? That big hallelujah chorus it's also called? I'm sure you've heard it if you've um, listened to music anytime during the Christmas season. But what most people don't realize is all the words in that composition were taken right here from Isaiah chapter 9. In every performance, the pinnacle of the musical piece comes toward the end when the choir starts to sing the hallelujah chorus, that hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. And I know all the music people are going, oh my gosh, please never do that again. But <laughs> there's a slow buildup that crescendos into a wave of worship of God. And I really love it when the bass voices sing, and he shall reign forever and ever. And it just makes me want to go, yeah. That just it, it really just speaks to me because it's it's such an amazing piece of work. And during these next four weeks and culminating on Christmas Eve, we're going to look at the four descriptions of the baby born in Bethlehem. And as we do that, it's my hope that you will see that these attributes of Jesus are exactly what we need in our day today and what we need to be showing the world about the one we worship and the one that we follow. And the goal of this series is to help you take an hour off during the Christmas season on every Sunday and, and get your minds off the commercialism of the holiday and get them back to where they should be. The wonder of God becoming human and becoming a baby in Bethlehem's manger. As an introduction to this series, I want to read you the verses of the Bible from which Handel wrote the Hallelujah Chorus. And you find them in Isaiah chapter 9, and starting in verse 2, that says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Going down to verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. And Lord, that is my prayer for this series, that it will be just an oasis of peace, an oasis of time that we can have during this holiday season to spend time with you, to focus on the true meaning and the reason for this season. Father God, we thank you and we ask, Lord, that your Holy Spirit will just touch us, that it will fill us, and that it will focus us on the right thing during this time. Lord God, I ask this in your name. Amen. Now, the whole holiday season, beginning 
with Thanksgiving, and even maybe a little bit before that, if you're a hunter, you know, our holiday starts the Monday or the Saturday before with the opening of hunting season. But it's right after that that we start getting into the swing of the holiday. And I've always found it to be very interesting that we go from a day of Thanksgiving where we celebrate everything God does for us, everything we have in life, everything that he has provided for us. And then the next day, we kind of turn into materialistic terrorists when we go out to Black Friday shopping. You see people shoving and, and screaming and yelling at people and, and trying to get that best sale out there. Hopefully, amongst all the hustle and bustle of the holiday season, it also brings about a little bit of introspection. Personally, I like to think about the following during this time. I think about maybe changing the pace and pattern of my life, spending more time with God, spending more time um, on the important things and not the unimportant things that, that can sometimes just get into your schedule and, and not really produce any good fruit for God. Maybe I want to hang out more with my family or with my friends. And above all, I always promise myself something at the beginning of the season, that I won't let myself get so caught up in the busyness of the season that I lose focus on the reason for the season. Does anybody else ever make themselves that promise? And about December 15th, that promise seems to have fallen to the wayside. Because you get so caught up in Christmas parties, so caught up in holiday celebrations, so caught up with travel plans, so caught up with buying gifts that you just want it to be over. And I don't think it's just me that feels that way. I think we all can get that way. And I think that there's somewhere just inside our skins, just inside of our spirits, that longs for a simpler time. It wants hope and warmth and security. I think it's part of the human condition. I just think it's part of the reason God puts seasons in our calendar to help us to go through these kind of times, to really have that introspection and look inside of us, to see what is pleasing to him and what is just clutter. I don't know of a better way for that to happen for us this morning than to look at the gift that God gave us by letting Jesus be born. During this time of year, we speak of something called the incarnation. The incarnation is a big word for an even bigger idea, that God became a little baby in Bethlehem's manger. The same God who challenges our imaginations and our spirit to believe in something so incredible is the same God that wants to show you the wonder of what he can do and who he can be in your life. If we really believe who Jesus came to be, imagine how that would change you. Imagine how much clarity that would give you, how much courage, how much understanding, how much hope that that would infill you with and be able to show other people. When I read scripture and I consider God's sovereign control and plan, and I think about the eternity past, I mean, I don't know what heaven looks like, but I know just from being a leadership in, in, in the business world or, or in the secular world, I know that you go through these times of planning meetings, and I just think, uh, you know, in my humanness, I guess, all the way back from eternity past when God was planning this whole plan of salvation out, that he was really looking forward and looking down through time, and he couldn't wait 
to inspire Isaiah to write down the text of Isaiah 9-6 so many years ago that tells us about his son. I think he couldn't wait to tell everybody how wonderful and how awesome that his son would be when he finally came to earth. And you notice that God didn't wait just a few, year, a few days before Jesus was conceived. He didn't schedule it a week out, a year out, a decade out, or even a century out. 700 years before Jesus was born, God chose Isaiah the prophet. And he said, Isaiah, write this down. Tell people about it. Here's what my son, the Messiah, is going to be like. He's going to be a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting father, and a prince of peace to everyone. Because so many people needed the clarity and courage and understanding and hope, God began announcing the news about his son 700 years before he arrived. Long before Handel ever wrote the Messiah, and people felt like they were in darkness, they were all looking at the description of God's son and saying, yes, this is what I need God to be for me. Let me read that central part, that Isaiah 9.6 for you again. It says, For us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. I want to look at that first description today, Wonderful Counselor. And I want to talk you through just that phrase in the hopes that you will never look at that manger scene again without appreciating the wonder of the person who was in it. If you've been around the church for a while, you know that the Bible, God inspired the people of the Bible when he inspired them to write down the exact words that we read. They didn't write that in English. Israel lived, or excuse me, Isaiah lived in ancient Israel, so he wrote all these words in Hebrew. And in Hebrew, the word wonderful counselor is pelo yohetz. It literally means that wonderful counselor, but I want to break that down a little bit more. The word pele means wonderful, but it goes way beyond that. It's used dozens of times throughout the Old Testament and tends to mean wonderful in the sense of the best ever or better than anyone else could possibly understand or possibly comprehend or possibly do themselves. Because it's usually describing something so great only God can do it, almost all the Bible references of Pele are referring to God. Job uses that word when he says that God performs wonders that cannot be fathoms and miracles that cannot be counted. King David says about God, you are great and do marvelous deeds. You alone are God. That word marvelous is Pele. You're starting to get the sense of it. The second word, Yohetz, means counselor. But in our day of age, when we think of a counselor, we're usually picturing somebody sitting across the room for, uh, from us while we're laying on a couch asking us, so how do you feel about that? Or tell me about your mother. That's what we consider to be a counselor. And that's not what a counselor was at the time of Isaiah. Another common word for counselor is that of an attorney. You ever watch courtroom dramas? You always see the judge saying, counselor this or counselor that. Talking about attorneys on both the plaintiff and um, defendant's side. 
But they were. But in Isaiah's day, counselors or this yohets were not therapists and they weren't lawyers. They were strategists. They were the chief advisors to those in power. In other words, when you read the book of Daniel, Daniel was one of these yohetses, one of these counselors, one of these advisors to kings in power. These were incredibly wise and learned men. They gave people they were counseling advice on how to win a war or win a political campaign or organize a new business venture. Counselors advised a king or other people of importance about the best course to take, whether no matter what the circumstances were they were facing. So yohets means one who gives advice or guidance. And in Jesus' lifetime here on earth, we see several examples of him fulfilling this role prophesied by Isaiah. Before we go on to Luke chapter 8, I'm just going to go to Luke 19, just for a second. And Jesus sets up a lunch appointment with a crusty old businessman named Zacchaeus. During this lunch, he helped Zacchaeus see that a single-minded pursuit of wealth was wrecking everyone else around him. Jesus' counsel changed the course of Zacchaeus' entire life. His course, his counsel, excuse me, to Zacchaeus was Pele. In other words, the best ever and exactly what Zacchaeus needed to hear, and it was better than he could get from anyone else. We see another type of this kind of counsel in Luke chapter 8. In Luke chapter 8, it says that Jesus restored a man's life who had been tormented by demons for a long time. Afterwards, as this man's mind was clearing, he's realizing what's happened to him. And the Bible says, the man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him, him being Jesus. Now that's understandable, isn't it? If somebody has just rescued you from decades of demonic oppression and demonic possession, where you were naked living in caves like an animal, and somebody cleared that up for you, of course you're going to want to follow them. Of course you're going to want to always be around them. And he's grateful, and he wants to soak up everything that he can of Jesus. So he begs Jesus, you know, let me go with you. I'll carry your bags. I'll shine your shoes. I'll tuck you in at night. Whatever you want, I will take care of you, Jesus. Just let me come with you so I can testify to everybody of how you changed my life. And honestly, if you think about it, if somebody did that for somebody today, that person would probably say, yeah, come along with me. I need somebody to carry my projectors. I need somebody to carry some equipment. I need somebody to be my right-hand man. I, I, I need that in my life. But Jesus doesn't say that. Instead, the text says in Luke 8.39, it says, Jesus sent him away saying, return home and tell how much God has done for you. If you translate that, Jesus is saying, I love that you want to serve me. I love that you want to spend all your time with me. But the best thing for you and for my mission for you is to return home and show the people the power of God working in your life. Be a trophy of grace. Be a symbol to your community of the saving power found through relationship with me, Jesus the Christ. 
And the man did just that. It says in Luke 8.39 that the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for them. Other people may have given him different counsel. They might, it might have even been good counsel. But Jesus' counsel was the best ever. The best possible counsel for that man right there. Immediately following that, the text says in Luke 8.40, it says, Now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Luke 8.41 says, that Then there was a man named Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. Now push pause on that for a moment and try to put yourself in Jairus' position of what he must have been feeling. The text says Jairus is a leader in his religious order. He's probably a fairly mature guy. He probably wields power and influence in this community. With all of that he has going for him, he's probably wealthy, he's probably used to having servants do everything for him. With all of that, he is completely helpless to help his daughter. His daughter is dying. So what does he do? He calls on the wonderful counselor, Jesus. And Jesus says that you'll come. So now if you're Jairus, you've got the wonderful counselor, full attention. He's coming with you. He's, he's, he's making his way through these crowds. And you're hoping he's going to fix everything. You're hoping he's going to heal your daughter. But you know your daughter does not have a lot of time. So you're trying to push him through these crowds to get him to where he needs to be. And then the next verse, in verse eight, or Luke 8.42, it says that as Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. So they are wading through a crowd that he could even barely move in. I don't know if you've ever been to a large gathering, but when I used to uh, work in Milwaukee, occasionally we would have to go help at Summerfest, and it would get so crowded in there that you were literally moving like this. This is the kind of press and crowd that they are talking about here, where they can barely move. And now you're Jarius. You're thinking, time's running out. We've got to get through this crowd. Come on, we've got to go. Disciples, clear the way. Do something. And the next verse says, A woman was there that had been subject to bleeding for 10 or 12 years, and no one could heal her. Now, why do you suppose she's in the crowd? Because she, like everyone else, has discovered that Jesus' abilities are the best ever. She's hoping that the wonderful counselor can help her. In Luke 8.44 it says, She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. See what just happened? This is very significant, and it's, it's often lost in this story. This condition of the issuing of blood would have made her very unclean in the eyes of her society. Under Mosaic law, if a woman had a discharge like that, she was considered unclean, quarantined, not allowed to talk to anybody, not allowed to touch anybody. She had to live by herself. If she went out, had to go out to the well, she had to go during a time of the day when she's not going to run into people. She has to walk, and if I was walking 
on this side of the street and you were walking toward me, I would have to yell, unclean, unclean. And that person would, would go onto the other side of the road. So she is used to being totally isolated for the last 10 years of her life. If she failed to do this, she could be stoned. She would be executed if she failed to do this. So she's risking her life being in this crowd where nobody else could move and having physical contact with others so she could meet with the wonderful counselor Jesus. Not only is she at risk of death from touching others, but now she's reaching out and touching a holy man while having this condition. We really don't have a modern example. I, I tried to come up with one, but I, I really couldn't without getting really gross. But this is really, really bad what she is doing in the eyes of her culture. The next verse says that Jesus turns around and he says, Who touched me? Remember, if she's recognized, she's going to be executed. Their whole town will come together to stone her. Everybody knows she has a disease. And in her day, most of these diseases that would cause this issue of blood were probably caused from sexual promiscuity. So she also has that stigma on top of her also. In her culture, the lowest you could get was a leper. She was about a quarter step above a leper. But Jesus, the holy man, stops to speak with her. Now, step back for a moment and push pause again. There's another person in this story still. You have a man over here, Jairus, that needs Jesus to get to his daughter because his daughter is about to die. And now Jesus, the holy man, standing next to the local synagogue leader, is talking to the lowest person in the village, a person he shouldn't even be acknowledging or talking to, or even say, he should be saying, according to their law, stone her for touching me. She's made me unclean now. Why are she, imagine what's going through his mind. Why, Jesus, are you wasting time with this worthless, sinful woman? We're going to fix my daughter. You need to get there. She's, she's on her last legs, Jesus. Time is running out. But Jesus isn't hurried. And he stops right there in the middle of the road. The next sentence says, when they had all denied it, Peter said, Master, these people are crowding and pressing against you. The disciples are, come on, Jesus. Who can you tell who touched you? Everybody's touched you. And Jarius is sitting there going, come on, come on, quit wasting time. Everybody's pushing Jesus to hurry up here. But Jesus said, someone touched me, and I know power has gone out from me. And the text said, then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Now, why did Jesus make her show herself? Why did Jesus make her acknowledge that he had healed her? And think about Jairus again. Why are we stopping? Hurry, Jesus. My daughter's dying. But this is exactly why Jesus is our wonderful counselor. Because look what he says. 
It says in Luke 8.48, he says to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Which I think is a hint as to why Jesus stopped in the first place. See, he wasn't just content with healing this woman's body. He was interested in her heart. He wanted to counsel her. He wanted to speak with life into her, where for so many years there had been nothing but suffering and death. The wonderful counselor wanted to start rebuilding all these years that the enemy had taken away from her. He didn't minister to just one thing. He wanted to heal a whole person. That is why Jesus is such a wonderful counselor to us. Jesus took the time to encourage her and say, you did good. You expressed faith in me, and now that expression of faith has healed you. As you go, don't just go with a healed body. Go with a healed heart too and go in peace. Jesus was helping her in every single way. But meanwhile, we still have Jairus. Jairus is still standing there. He's trying to shove Jesus through this crowd, trying to get him to move faster. Think of it, if, this, if you're a father or a mother and you're, and you're trying to get this person, like a doctor to your daughter faster, and he's stopping and talking to everybody and, and how frustrating that had to be for Jairus. He doesn't seem to be at all concerned about what's going on, and you're supposedly the big person in town. How many of you have been there? How many of you have seen somebody else be healed while you are still suffering? In the next verse, Jairus' worst nightmare is realized. In Luke 8, 49, it says that while Jesus was still speaking, Someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead. Don't bother the teacher anymore. We were talking about a moment ago when you see other people get healed and you're still suffering. Do you think Jesus, or excuse me, do you think Jairus was still looking at Jesus as a wonderful counselor? But he is, and he tells Jairus in Luke 8, 49, Jesus said to Jairus, don't be afraid. Just believe, and she will be healed. Is that good counsel? Because look what happens next, verse 50. When Jesus arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, James, and John, and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She's not dead, but asleep. Now, how would you respond to Jesus during that? They laughed at him. This guy, this guy is from Nazareth. He's some cracker from Nazareth. What, is, what does he know? She's dead, dead. Jesus seemed to be anything but the wonderful counselor in this moment. But look what happens next. In Luke 8.54, says that Jesus took her by the hand and said, My child, get up. Her spirit returned and at once she stood up. We spoke a moment 
about how people have been praying for years for healing and it doesn't seem to come. It seems sometimes like they get worse and worse and worse. There's a saying that says it's always darkest before the dawn. Many of you might be in that dark night of fear or doubt or unbelief. And my heart goes out to you, and so does Jesus' heart. That's why we all need a wonderful counselor. Jesus wants to be your wonderful counselor this morning. He wants to let you know that no matter what you have done, no matter what consequence that past sin may be leveling on your life right now, no matter what you have done, that although it may seem like Friday night right now where the forces of evil are just laughing at you, that Sunday is on the way. Sunday morning resurrection is coming. And it's my hope that for you that two things will happen for you as a result for coming this morning. One is that for the next few weeks you won't look at that manger like you have in the past. And it's my hope that every time you see a manger, you'll think not just about a little baby, but you'll think about a God growing up to be a wonderful counselor. Maybe while you're thinking about it, you can just pause and say, Jesus, thank you. Thank you for being that wonderful counselor to me. The second thing I'm hoping that will happen is that every day from now until Christmas, you also will seek the counsel of Jesus particularly those who might be suffering with something right now. I encourage you, if you've never read his life story, read the Gospel of John during the Christmas season and find out what he has to say to you. Or maybe if you've already had a relationship with him, that you'll seek his counsel every day. Every morning when you get up, every time you face a major decision or a challenge, throughout your day, You'll just say, God, I don't know what I should do about this, but you do. Jesus, give me your counsel on this. Give me your perspective. Give me your advice. Direct me and let me choose the way I should go. Because Jesus will change your life if you let him be your wonderful counselor. Amen? Amen. Let's all rise. Hallelujah. Father, it's one of the blessings, and it's both a blessing and a curse, that we live in the 21st century where everybody is lives online and, and projects an image and a reality to the world that might not actually be the true reality. We're so interconnected, but yet again so isolated. And we often don't share when some of us are walking through the valley of the shadow of death. So Lord Jesus, I just ask that you be wonderful counselor to these people this morning. That you'll help them to have the faith of the woman with that issue of blood. To no matter what society thinks, no matter what consequence comes, that they will press through and reach out to you and everything whether it be physical illness, whether it be spiritual illness, whether it be a marital problem, 
whatever it may be, Father, I ask that they would extend your, their hand to you and that you will give them peace, hope, and love. And most of all, you'll just give them yourself. Father God, I thank you. I ask your blessing to be upon your people this morning. I ask, Father, you give them eyes to see and ears to hear the wonder of the incarnation this morning and help their hearts to be fully set upon hearing your voice and doing your will this holiday season. Father God, I bless them now and I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.